Hello and welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. And today we are talking about The Lemon, a book we have been loudly and gleefully praising since its release in November. Coming up, I'll be speaking with its three authors, Joe Cohane, Kevin Alexander, and Alessandra Lusardi, collectively known for the purposes of this novel as Essie Boyd. The Lemon is a satirical gem of a book about which Lee Child said, It's laugh-out-loud sensational, a nonstop, scalpel-sharp, satirical skewering of, well, everything. A whole new genre, sardonic suspense. Now please enjoy Brother, Brother, Brother's conversation with the authors of The Lemon. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I am your host, Wyndham Lewis, and today uh, we are uh, reversing our our number counts. It is me alone, and I am interviewing three folks, Joe Cohane, Kevin Alexander, and Alessandra Lusardi, collectively known as S.E. Boyd, for the sake of their first novel, The Lemon, which is uh, now out about three months, and has uh, made a lot of waves, a uh, big hit, and um, you guys have kind of wrapped up your publicity tour, but I, I'd love to have you talk about the book itself, but also about the, uh, you know, what it takes to sell a book these days and what it takes to promote a book um, these days. I, I assume you are comfortably ensconced back at home after your massive uh, book tour and uh, and after the holidays, but um Tell us a little bit about how The Lemon came to be, and uh, we'll start with the sort of rudimentary questions that you've been answering for several months, and uh, you know, let us know the two things that uh, everybody's asked. Let us know what, how The Lemon came about, and also how three people write a book together. Right. <clears throat> Who wants it? Who wants this one? <laughs> Who wants this spicy yeah. meatball? Joe, Joey, do it. <laughs> Um, yeah, okay, so we've, Kevin and I have worked together for a long time. Uh, we met when we worked at Boston Magazine. This would have been like 20 years ago or so, and we've worked together in various capacities over the years um, at a few different, few different outlets. And I think in you know, probably 2019 or so, he came up with the idea, with the premise for a novel, where you had a character who, you know, is similar to an Anthony Bourdain type, like a, like a food world celebrity who's renowned for his authenticity. Um, if someone like that died under really embarrassing circumstances, and then the people around him tried to cover it up, right? And they, they kind of sold a fake story to protect his reputation, but then it just created this chain reaction of, of people who are trying to capitalize off of it or seize control of the narrative. Just this kind of like, this absolute, um, stampede of bullshit and opportunism um, of people trying to like you know get close to him get a piece of him advance their careers by by claiming special knowledge and all this stuff so um that was the the initial idea and then it just kind of grew organically from there um a lot of it is is based on kevin's experience covering um, covering the, the high-end food world and alessandra joined us at the beginning of the process um 
she had been working with Kevin on what two books or three books prior to that, two books as an editor um, on two books. So she yeah, got on yeah, board yeah. with the lemon and just kind of live edited as we went. Um, and you know, it's it's funny that we're on a music podcast because it really was you know as a, I'm a musician, so the the feeling of it was much more like being in a band than it was. Um, writing. It was much more collaborative. It was faster. It was really entertaining. It was really fun. Whereas writing, you know, is a fairly solitary, quiet exercise. Um, this was even the process of doing this book was kind of riotous. Um, but one of you guys want to talk about like how it, how it, how it worked, how it, what the work, what the workflow was. Is that interesting? I mean, I, yeah, sure. I can. Um, since, you know, I, I sort of hovered over uh, what what Kevin and Joe were doing to some extent. Um, yeah, they would, you know, they would lay down first drafts, um, of chapters and, and the way we, uh, you know, decided, um, it would, you know, each chapter is dedicated to a different character. So, um, that way you can like really stay within, uh, one person's head almost even as you're going, you know, between actual authors, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it was pretty, we got into a really nice groove of, you know, meetings every Friday to plan the week ahead, um, just constant back and forth with, you know, drafts that were being finished, other ones that were being kind of retouched and revised. Um, and in the, in the meantime, just constant texting of like, you know, I'm struggling with this thing right here, like what do you guys think? And then somebody might, you know, pitch a different, different joke or different wording or whatever. And it was just kind of constant streams of communication that was like, as Joe said, really riotous and really, really fun. And um, as an editor, I, you know, I don't see things happen as quickly as mm -hmm. the writing of this novel happened and i mean it when we tell people it, it blows their mind especially if they've had any experience writing um mm -hmm. and you know because as again as joe said it's solitary it's slower and you're just kind of wrestling with your own demons you know like does this work does it not and here you've got like really fast feedback, really good alternative pitches for stuff that doesn't work. And, you know, everyone just really respected everybody else's kind of take on things and, you know, senses of humor too. So well, let me ask you this, it's, a, you know, it is, it, it has that feel of a, uh, you know, I mean, at least your description of it has that feel of a writer's room, but it, you know, this was obviously done um, largely during uh, COVID, I would assume, or unless it predated, unless the bulk of it predated it. How much of this was was sort of sitting down and, and planning out, and how much of it was, I mean, and I'll direct this to you, Kevin, how much of it um, kind of, how much of the uh, forward propulsion kind of took place on text and phone calls and... and by the way, this is the longest Kevin's ever gone without speaking. Yeah. I just want yeah. to say that. I had a stopwatch going. <laughs> I, was, I was testing myself. I was, I was seeing if I could do it. Um, I'm really proud of myself. Um, yeah, I would say we would, uh, we had these seeds of ideas. And so we'd start with those. And then if you could just see the way that they zigged and zagged, like characters that came in and then fell off. Um, I think also part of it was like, because it's part of the zeitgeist of the moment, we were 
big up on like, oh, did you see this article? Did you see this story? Like, ooh, that feels very like Boydian. Like, how do we get that in there? How do we work this in? Or, ooh, we should take from there. So there was like all sorts of these notes that were just kind of like stacking up and we'd, and we'd look for things like that. And I think that's, that was a big part of the process. Um, but yeah, so, so it was really like, I mean, you know, Joe as a musician just is always like, uh, I, you know, I wanted to feel like jazz. So he was constantly referencing jazz. This is the and, only um, truly American. Art and form. so he doesn't really like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He, uh, yeah, he considers himself like a jazz pioneer, but I don't want to get into that, but, um, I don't want to put words. It's about the words you said, don't say. Said that. And, um, <laughs> but it was like, uh, so we wouldn't, we never really got farther ahead than like a week or so, uh, in front. So we would, we would talk about what we're writing for the next week. And um, and then we just kind of go because we felt like if we did it the other way, then the story would drive mm -hmm. rather than the characters. And it felt really yeah, important that the characters literature drive is also an American art form. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we can <laughs> discuss the history of that number. Um, but did, so did you start off with, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, because each one of these characters is is a fantastic um you know, individual achievement in of itself. Did you start off with this roster of characters? I mean, did some of these um, occur to you mid, you know, mid course, or or was this or were these the you know were these leads the the leads from the get go? I think they were the leads from the get go. Um, there were some kind of side characters that came in and came out um, as we wrote mm -hmm. it, but you know we have. Matthew McConaughey, which we can talk about. Matthew he McConaughey. Had a brief cameo and then was mercifully excised from the <clears throat> manuscript. Um, but, you know, like the, the John Doe, who's the, the man who dies at the beginning, he's the host of like a beloved food travel show. Um, his best friend discovers the body. His best friend is like one of the world's greatest chefs, Paolo Cabrini. So we needed that character just to start things off to create this kind of you know, tension where, where Paolo Cabrini's like a craftsman, right? Like a genuine um, culinary genius in a world of bullshit um, because we just liked, we liked having that tension there. Um, we needed a journalist. So, you know, drawing on Kevin and my experience working for like some shitty outlets, um, we created this character, Katie Horatio, who's just <laughs> like, a, like a panicked, um, failing internet journalist who just lives and dies by the numbers, the traffic numbers. And, you know, Kevin and I have both worked in situations where you're literally sitting under the fucking chart beat board, um, praying that whatever story you just put up, like, works, that it, that it gets traffic. And when they don't, like, your position in that place yeah. is, like, a little more tenuous than it was before. And it's a horrendous, like, working in digital media now, it's just a miserable, a miserable grind. So we wanted someone who was going to be unhinged by that, who was, like, pushed to the end. She's about to lose her job. She's, she's, her reputation is ruined because she's worked in this terrible place. Um, and she makes up a story about John Doe claiming like personal knowledge of what really happened to him. And then that story goes viral and she becomes like, you know, kind of a celebrity in her own right. So that made sense. We needed a handler, you know, it's kind of a manager, a crisis PR person. So that was Nina, Nia Green, who um, is very close to John Doe and, and tries to like, you know, 
sort of control the story, you know, like get the fake story out there, make sure it sells, make sure that they're not losing control of the narrative, both to protect her friend's reputation, but also to protect the business because she's part of his production company. Um, and then, I don't know, do you want to talk about, and then we have just a, a deranged um, Irish hotel porter, um, Charlie McCree, who's just the chaos agent, um, who's based on a real person. Um, Who is that? I'm not gonna, I don't think you ever met him. He lived in Boston for a while. He, he, he was from Cork, and he's returned to Cork. Um, but his name was, I mean, he was a... He was a as far as a, we know. A maniac. Yeah, he's dead. A, like, oh. one of the most insane maniacs I've ever met in my life. So, like, part of him went to Charlie. Um, and then we have Patrick Whalen, um, which um, Kevin can speak to a little bit more because he's more of a, a food business um, creature. Mm. That's what food I call business chefs. creature. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I like the jargon. Yeah, food, <laughs> and don't forget As a food laugh. business creature. I would laugh yeah. Too, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 No, no, no. So I, mean, I guess they both... Um, but uh, Patrick is sort of a combination of two celebrity chefs that will go unnamed. Mm -hmm. uh, one who has roots in Boston and one who does not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Close? <laughs> It's a composite. Did you know, Lynch, you, you Lydia Shire, that yeah. God damn it. I guess I was. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. Barbara <laughs> would book. be a whole yeah. other. Can also of called Lemon. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, so yeah, so, so the, he came from there and we really wanted someone who like was a huge star 20 years ago and like, just felt upset like that Doe had worked for him and then he had gone his, you know, he had risen even higher and we wanted him to be bitter. Mm. We wanted him to be a little like cheesy. We wanted him to be on the, the outs. You know, he starts, you find him doing cameos in Vegas. Uh, Cause he just basically has that restaurant now. Um, and then lad, which is interesting. Lad is a Georgian American. Uh, no, he's, actually a Georgian immigrant who starts a uh, beans restaurant in Queens. And we needed sort of the, the person who is just sort of run over by all these other events we needed. And uh, Katie lies and says that she went to that restaurant with dough and then everyone starts going there and he is just like, yeah. and he's, what the fuck? <laughs> like, he's totally out. Why are all these the people whole, here? Like, yeah. You know, food as competitive sport thing that has become, you know, kind of like the driving way of foodie culture of like, you know, trendy places, posting about them, you know, who can get in where, whatever. Um, but also kind of this, this whole notion of like, authenticity right because doe was the ultimate authentic celebrity which is mm -hmm. in itself kind of you know a paradox but um but lad is this totally bare bones unassuming guy who you know he cooks beans and it's like oh god could there be anything more humble and noble and authentic as a bean restaurant. And of course it would be John Doe's favorite place that mm. he tried to keep secret from the rest of the world because he didn't want it to be ruined because it was perfect already. You know, just like all of the, just like, you know, hagiography hey of, of this whole concept. And Lad is just like, who are you people? 
like, you know, is totally unimpressed with, with them and with the sort of success that they have brought him. And like, all he wants to do is like close on time, get his beans cooked. And when he's out of beans, you know, he closes the restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Lock the door. Yeah. No. And, but it is that whole idea of, and it was really entertaining because you, you saw this a lot in the food world where there's almost that like soup Nazi thing where the meaner he was to the people, the more authentic he was, you know, the, he didn't make more beans. He didn't like lean into any of the things and, and everyone loved it. They're like, Oh yes. Like be mean to me, like make me wait in a longer line. Like don't, you know, don't give me any of the comforts like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. That's giving me authenticity. And it yeah. was, that's a weird yeah. thing yeah, that happens in the food world. Yeah, there's nothing more authentic and there's nothing that gives you more credence than closing when you run out of food. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> it's uh, Umberto's in the exactly. North End. Yeah. Look, man, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, uh, but no, it's it's that, like, people love to be flogged. Yeah, people um, people who so. are are puffed up on, on sort of... Um, you know, in a false sense of something or, you know, that I think that, you know, I was, you guys have both talked about it, but I was going to go back to this sort of this central tenet of authenticity that, that kind of, um, you know, it, it, I won't say it, it runs through the book because it absolutely a hundred percent doesn't run through the book. It starts the book. And then you, the sort of, the rest of it is a bonfire of inauthenticity. Um, sort of, I, I don't know if you guys want to talk to that at all, um, mm -hmm. but it just keeps getting further and further away from this ideal that everybody seems to have embraced. Yeah, it's just like the, the inherent tension in being famous for being authentic and for monetizing authenticity, right? So authenticity is this thing that's supposed to be so pure and it cannot be, you know, it's, it's like immune to contamination. And here we are, like, when you sell it, well, now you're going to have to shape it a little bit, change it a little bit, you know, sand it down a little bit. Um, if you're famous for it, you don't really control it. So if you're the authentic person and the world loves you for it, then invariably at some point you're going to start giving it away to the people a little bit. You're going to give them a little control of your own image. You're going to disappear a little bit into the perception of others. Um, I, you know, none of us have ever been famous or terribly close to famous people. But or authentic. Yeah. You know, or authentic, right? <laughs> Deeply disingenuous people. But, um, but you can see it. You can see it in the choices that famous people make as their fame starts to ebb, right? Like, first they're leading the pack and people are following them, and then they kind of lose direction, and they're sort of like, so what, what do you guys want me to do now? Like, mm -hmm. you want me to, how about tap dancing? Do you like tap dancing? No? Okay. How about, like, we try a little bit of this? And it always, yeah. like, there's always this pivot point if someone's famous long enough that you invariably arrive at that point where you're just, like, you start to be reactive, right? And mm -hmm. then you just start giving things away. Um, and sometimes that, that results in things like cameo, and that results in things like Dancing with the Stars, where you're just like, what do I have to do to, to keep your attention, you know? It's mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. I don't know, have you ever listened to that, that Charles Mingus record, The Clown? No, but they were bringing back to jazz. I have not. I'm not familiar. Yeah. So jazz, as I said, is the only American art form, and and Charles Mingus was like was a great composer. Um, no, but he so he's a record called The Clown, and the, it's I forget who wrote the poem, but he basically put music to a poem, and the poem's about this guy who wants to be a clown. So he goes up and he does his best, and people hate him. They don't think he's funny, and they don't think he's ingenious or anything. So they boo him, and so then he keeps trying and trying and trying, and he wants to bring this special thing to the world. 
and no one gives a shit. No one, no one is interested in taking it. And then one day on stage, um, he trips and falls and hurts himself, and people think it's hilarious. So now he was just like, oh, okay, like this is what people want. So he hurts himself again, and they don't think it's as funny because he hasn't hurt himself. He hurt him, you know, like it's diminishing returns. So he starts hurting himself more to get like the applause he got the first time, and then he keeps hurting himself more and more and more until he eventually kills himself, and it's like the biggest cheer of his life. But I always love that as like, uh, you know, that provides pretty good insight into what fame is when you when you pass that certain point, you know, when you do become reactive, when you start giving mm -hmm. too much away to the audience just to hold their attention. Um, and that sort of idea intermingled with like the fetish for authenticity that we have in the culture and especially in the food world just made for some really fun stuff to play with. Yeah, it's, it, yeah. go ahead. I think, um, yeah, Kevin, you, you in particular, uh, as a James Beard award winner, um, have chronicled, um, <laughs> have chronicled yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that the, uh, <laughs> Yeah, this is going to be I audio only, it. so if you could just uh, tap it with a mallet, that would be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll just, I'll just we can take a couple it. more minutes for that. But no, I mean, the, but the, but the, um, but have you seen an escalator? I mean, did, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but have you seen an escalation in the absurdity of, or the, the sort of, re, re, the need for specificity and, and, um, in the in food writing and coverage um, since you started doing it? Yeah, I mean, it. What, what was interesting about it was at the beginning, it was the whole rock star chef era, right? It was the bad boy chefs. It was everyone were these like white older chefs that yelled and, and came Trotters up in the French in world. And, mm -hmm. and they were sort of like, yeah, exactly. The... Uh, uh, um, Batali and the uh, Gordon Ramsay and all that sort of stuff. And uh, you were like, like, oh, like they're rock stars because they like, they're mean and they drink a lot and like they throw pans, but like, man, this food. And then, and so you, so that was like a big, that, that launched for a while. And then you saw it kind of turn and then you saw it kind of break as people were like, what what like why are we doing this these people aren't great they're actually just really like tortured like fucked up people that came into uh like you know because like a big thing and this is something that bourdain talked about but it was like kitchens were for like misfits and drug addicts and like the people sort of on the edges uh that didn't want to live in a normal world and then ironically when bourdain kind of made it more popular and uh you know you saw this explosion of mainstream people going into those places and also shining a light on wanting to have a sort of mainstream idea of uh the the cooking world and it was like so you saw this like weird thing where they're either like you know upper middle class people chasing this sort of like badass lifestyle of being a cook or and you saw like the glorification kind of come full circle and now we're sort of we're chasing authentic authenticity in a totally different way where it's sort of been locked into its various places mm -hmm. of like well who can cook this food right like who can do that who who is allowed to do what 
and it's a really strange world. And I, I, I wrote a piece a few years ago about authenticity and it just being bullshit in food because you were saying all these things of, oh, like, you know, this Northern Italian food, whatever, like all of the food is being cooked by Central American line cooks mm-hmm. at all of Can these confirm. restaurants. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> so it's like, what conversation are we really having? Um, but you know, that's for a, a, another podcast, but, um, but yeah, you, you, you've seen, you've seen the sort of full circle and it was really entertaining to include Patrick as someone who really came up in that era and made good uh, during that time when sort of as like a good looking, you know, sort of uh, working class Irish Catholic white boy from Weymouth with a little bit of an accent, like he could, you know, he, he could just kind of get by. And then for him to now see that that doesn't work anymore, um, you know, because there's a there's and this is something that we could talk about, but there's a generational uh, conflict within the book as well, whether it's between. Patrick and, you know, his girlfriend, Jackie, who's 20, 30 years younger than him, whether it's between Katie and Nia, like there are these constant balance points where like different generations, um, you know, are just butting heads. And it turns out the younger generation always wins. <laughs> they can just wait mm-hmm. out the other generation. They can outlast you. Yes, yeah, no, but exactly. I, do think that's, I, I yeah. do think that's interesting because that's not something that I think is immediately... Um, you know, it, there isn't the sort of uh, triumph of either that that you know would would tip you off to the fact that you know you're you're sort of putting you the smart money behind um, the older generation or the new generation or or you know bitching about either. Um, so it is kind of interesting that you sort of drew those lines and then um, you know allowed them to to sort of you know work themselves out in the in the normal tension of things that. Um, this is, these are going to be conflicts, but they're not, you know, there isn't a clear cut victor and, and, um, you know, talk a little bit about that. Um, that wasn't exactly in the form of a question. Um, but, um, you know, I think a little bit about the, the, that as a, um, as a motivator when you were, when you were writing this. Well, everyone makes compromises, you know, and it's like, you know, Patrick, I mean, he finally, he kind of hits rock bottom and just sort of realizes that like his time has passed. But, you know, if he were to try to recapture that, I mean, it just would never, it would never work. And because he's trying to apply this sort of old, older mentality to what people want now. And you can't just, you know, learn it. You can't just like, Oh, I'm just going to get really good at social media. And then that's what it's going to take for me to revive my culinary career. Um, but, you know, he's redeemed at the end and he, you know, he sort of goes back to his roots kind of, you know, literally and, and figuratively in terms of cooking. And, um, and I think, I don't know. I mean, not, not sure Katie really wins. I mean, she wins maybe in a material sense in that she, sort of you see her star rise and she becomes, you know, famous and sought after. Um, But she also kind of has like a complete psychic breakdown. Mm. Um, You know, if anyone who's read the book hopefully appreciates the just insanity of the old Katie versus new Katie uh, personality split that happens really, really beautifully. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, I'd say there are no real winners, but some people are redeemed. And so they kind of, their lot has improved in a way. And for some, it's just, you know, they've just kind of been chewed up and spit out and are just have to find a way to, like, pick up the pieces and try again. Yeah, I think a lot of it, too, <clears throat> is just, um, it's not... I don't think it's, I mean, people often ask us if, if we think it's a cynical book or if we're cynical. And it's not that we're cynical about the characters, but we're definitely cynical about the culture that they exist in, um, which in this case is like sort of food celebrity culture, media culture. And what's so interesting about developing these characters and sort of running them through that ringer is that it just forces you to confront all the compromises that need to be made in order to flourish in a culture that's like inherently corrupt. Right, mm -hmm. like what are the sacrifices you have to make? What do you have to give in order to stay afloat, um, in order to like stay on top in this sort of culture? And it just becomes an interesting commentary on the effect that like different cultures have on the on the the thinking and the incentives well, of individual at, people oh. who live within those cultures. I was um, going to say, look at Lad and Jan as a as an example. Like, you know, Lad does not care, uh, and that's you know, his restaurant becomes a success due to these things. And then his younger son, who is like a club promoter entrepreneur who comes back into the family business, he intuitively recognizes the the culture of today. And he has no qualms selling out, quote unquote, in any sort of way. And in their sort of a mad mm -hmm. genius about just just blatantly doing that like he he knew what he was doing when he's you know creates a mural of like uh of like uh you know famous georgians and including zaza Pachulia um eating beans on the wall like he knows what he's doing when he's selling t-shirts uh with the quote like a made-up quote from doe on the back and he knows what he's doing when uh, eventually uh, you know i don't want to to ruin what happens, but like they, when you are just there, when there's like a, a purity to not caring, like when you're, you don't care about selling out, you don't care about like, oh, this is going to be embarrassing for me in some manner. There's, that's like the, the freedom that's currently very successful uh, in America right now. You know, if you, mm -hmm. if you, yeah, it's a freedom from shame. Yeah. If you are free mm -hmm. from shame, if you don't feel that, then you, you know, the, the sky is the limit. Um, the, the internet is yours. Yeah. yeah. Just, yeah. Just whap dances. Um, <laughs> right. Am I right? Yeah. That's how the kids say it. Yeah. I, I mean, getting back, cutting back away from the book and into the business of things. Um, I mean, I was going to segue over, um, uh, when you were talking about the jaded nature of, of certain pursuits, I was going to cut over to a, a discussion of, of, you know, any dealings with Hollywood or any chance that this is going to be made um, into a television program or a movie. Um, but I, and I'm not sure if that's something that you're ready to talk about, but um, a simple no will do and a simple yes will do. I mean, we... No, we we can talk about yeah, it. Great. Talk Someone about want to it. talk yeah. about it? We've um, we've sold the rights and we've written a pilot and we are working with a really awesome um, production company called Whip Entertainment and they did um, Mayor of East Town. They're doing this um, 
new Watergate show that's going to be coming out on HBO. What's it called? The Plumbers? Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Um, yeah, with Woody Harrelson and Justin Thoreau. Yeah, they're they're they've been incredible. So um, we are yeah we're just kind of on the precipice right now of you know hopefully fingers crossed something will happen. They're going out with it, and um, I don't know. Seems like TV's in a good place, right? That's a super exciting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. It's, uh, but it is it is interesting because had you gone out with this as a as a spec pilot, um, I'm not sure that you would have gotten the uh, yeah. traction that you've gotten with it as a book. And and right. I think and also, it, you know, I was gonna say just the timing with the bear mm-hmm. and the menu. It's like all of a sudden people feel just brave brave enough to acknowledge both the sort of ridiculousness of fine dining culture and also, yeah, exactly. And Mm -hmm. also the, um, you know, just this, the way that we as like consumers have fetishized the, the chef, you know, or, Mm -hmm. you know, John Doe's not a chef, he's a bartender, but like that, you know, that kind of foodie personality um so i mean hopefully you know there will continue to be interest in the sort of exploration of that well it's an interesting thing because you know i mean you know not to hew too close to the bourdain thing but the you know anthony bourdain was a very very successful um television host um he was a successful chef but he was you know by his own admission not an excellent chef he was a Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. had a finger on the pulse of how to middling how to yeah. please people i certainly went to that restaurant a lot when i was younger um and um but that is kind of an interesting way to break through you would think that you would need a sort some hallmark of excellence again um obviously he entered this through the publishing world but you would um you know i think in the absence of you know his chops his uh you know i think his personality kind of burnished his chef credentials over time and and alessandra coming from a restaurant background as you do a restaurant family and one that has been consistent for so long um you know what do you think about the sort of rise and fall kind of scenario that that goes with these stories um i mean it's 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 very weird to so my my parents are immigrants um my dad and uncles opened a restaurant in 1982 um, and it's still open. Um, and I know you've been there with them. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, and you know, it's on the Upper East Side of New York. So it has kind of survived through these just various stages True. of kind of food consumption, let's say, or sort of restaurant, restaurant consumption. Um, and they, you know, it's, it's a, it's a job, like it's a hard job. It was what they were good at and what they could do and, you know, what their, their own authenticity, cause they're both from outside of Parma. Um, you know, it's what they could bring to New York at a time when, um, there was not a lot of Northern Italian cuisine being made in Manhattan. It was all very kind of red saucy, like, uh, Italian American style. So, um, and then, you know, they just survived and because they weren't, they haven't changed all that much because they just weren't trying to do anything like trying to, you know, 
get famous or, or do whatever. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a business they were good at and people liked it. And it was like, you know, the good neighborhood place, they had all their regulars. And then, you know, as I grew, I grew up kind of in the restaurant and once I was like, you know, in my twenties and living in Brooklyn and it's sort of, it was like that kind of a restaurant was not cool you know, so like, I kind of wouldn't go anymore. And it was just for old people and, you know, yada, yada. So, and I kind of saw the sort of graying of the population at the restaurant. But you know what, but that's okay. Because guess who has money? Older people on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So like, as long as that's there, then who cares? Um, so it's weird to sort of be generationally and just due to the fact that I was born in here in New York um, to kind of be a part of that sort of, you know, the cresting of like the foodie hipster era population group mm -hmm. cohort um, while also kind of seeing my, you know, dad and family just sort of respond incredulously to how ridiculous some people would be when they came to the restaurant and like the photo taking and, you know, and, and just the sort of, I don't know. It's like, Oh, I was expecting a scene from a restaurant mm -hmm. that's been here for 40 years. And it's like, well, no, that's why it's been here for 40 years because it's not a scene. Um, sorry. That was a very long winded therapy. No, no, a very, um, but also <laughs> insider, yeah, a lot of insider knowledge. But the, the, what I was going to say, because I, I remember having a conversation with your father, Alessandra, uh, when we went to the restaurant and uh, Joe wasn't invited because um, he, he had COVID. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it was awesome. It was a great dinner. It was really good. I just want to think about My that for a second. Great that night but, um, I also had a really good dinner that yeah. night. <laughs> I don't need to go to but, some fucking uh, old person restaurant to enjoy myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he, I mean, the New York Times, when they wrote about the restaurant in 1982, they talked about it as ushering in this sort of nouveau Italian uh, thing in New York. And so at that time, it was on, you know, it was in that sort of like hot restaurant, like this is the new thing. It's where you went pre-Elaine's. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, it was like, it, and, and so I just find that funny that, you know, like that restaurants like that come in with that thing. And then they just, if they're lucky enough to last, which no restaurants really do anymore. Um, then you see down. it happen where it, yeah, where it like, naturally you can't be the hot new restaurant from, you know, if you if you opened in 1982 and it's the 2020 so the um but it also had that evolution you know it's not like it, they, he came in with like a restaurant that was like oh all right everyone knows what this is like it also went through that process i think the pendulum swinging back in a way i think there's a yeah, there's a swing is. back because there is um you know and i will reference the james beard award one more time but um you know, the James Beard Award is being, you know, the, the, in recent years, it's, you know, it's been very um, fixated on finding the sort of, um, you know, the Malaysian noodle place in a food court that, um, you know, gets the stamp of approval or, you know, the food truck. The Jonathan Goldification of the Beard Award. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And look what happened to him. Um, 
but <laughs> but you know I do think there is a you know a swing back to you know sort of uh, you know, there's going to be a, a sort of reliability factor that you know it's like we were saying before we went on having an AOL address has somehow become cool again it's like what oh, well, you also see like it was like with Forlini's before it closed or with Bemelman's. Mm -hmm. um, some of these classic mm -hmm. places are now sort of like swinging back around to like the 20 somethings are coming in there and rediscovering it. And um, yeah. I don't know, you, you 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 watch these things happen and it's it's cringy, but it's also like, OK, cool, like there's that new energy yeah. in the mix like that's not always a bad no, thing exactly no, and i think weirdly you know com like covid obviously was completely catastrophic but i do think in a way it it has like it's been good dare i say J just in terms of how um it forced people to reckon with uh, how essential neighborhood restaurants are and how badly, you know, they need to be supported. And mm -hmm. I think people are responding and just kind of more aware of, you know, how important their kind of Monday and Tuesday night dollars are versus their, you know, Friday and Saturday night dollars. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, people were stuck inside <laughs> cooking for themselves for a couple of years mm -hmm. and and I think the frivolity of of going out and taking a chance on something and getting disappointed is is kind of fallen victim um, to the place that you can put your finger on and be like, I like this dish at this place, and mm -hmm. and I know what I know what it's going to be, and I'm going to go there. I, I think it's helped a lot, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. For so sure. getting back to the book, um, you know, I just wanted to. Uh, um, I, there was one question I know I forgot to ask the last time we spoke, and that is um, that the picture on the cover is eerily reminiscent of the back of Joe Cohane's head. Um, <laughs> it is. Is that intentional? Is that you? It's not me. Um, <clears throat> the back of my head looked more like that when I had a worse barber with like the straight ah. line across the back. <laughs> that was like my Russian barber from days of old. Um, no, that's, that wasn't me. That's a, I guess, stock. It's actually Prince Harry. It's a coincidence. Prince Harry. Yeah. <laughs> Are you guys battling it out with um, Spare at the moment on the, uh, on the top of the... No, no. Yeah, I don't think... Uh, no. I think we've conceded a few uh, places of Spare, he but... Um, yeah, but... And we also... We, we deleted our frost bitten penis scene um <laughs> but yeah, he used you know, his it's so, i mean just uh, one of the many choices. many penis deletions that we had to that we had to make <laughs> that's true when our agent read the book he was like you know what'd be great um maybe like 30 percent less cock yeah and i was like well, i don't know man i don't know <laughs> well let's let the internet decide se boyd jr Moringer. um you know there's a little bit of <laughs> of uh of a comparison there. Now, exactly. Who, who was it? Was it internally decided that y'all should um, have a collective pen name rather than listing off the uh, uh, the three of you? I think we we decided it pretty early on because it's just so yeah. unwieldy. You wouldn't be able to get the picture of a back of a man's head on the cover if there were three names on it. It would just probably yeah. be the lemon, and then the rest of it is just names. And so it felt confusing. It felt like it was going to make for bad design. 
Um, and we just like the idea of a of having a pseudonym. And then mm -hmm. the pseudonym we decided on took us. We, we went back and forth quite a bit, coming up with ideas. Um, Kevin and I started just pulling names from like the roster of the 1987 Boston Red Sox, looking for names like something Gedman, um, Giraldi, Rich, Rich Giraldi. Richie <laughs> um, and we were like, you know, we wanted to do initials because we wanted it to be gender neutral. Um, and I think, yeah, I think the closest we got to something usable was Oil Can Boyd, which was going to be OC Boyd. Um, and then Alessandra will explain, but um, she rightly scotched <laughs> that one and got us to where we needed to go. I felt like it was just too redolent of masculinity, that OC Boyd. Like, it just was very, mm. very male. So I threw in an SE um, for SE Hinton because she was a lady. So, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> she was a soch. That's right. Yeah, yeah initially, the, the idea was going to be, you know, the, the bigger discussion, um, and for those of you who can't see what we're seeing right now, Kevin seems to be holding up, is that starting lineup? Is that it's, what those uh, are called, the figures? Yes, it's a starting lineup from 1988 uh, for is, the Red Sox. Is, is Oak um, and Boyd on there? No. He's not, no, unfortunately. Uh, but Marty Barry, yeah, actually, he actually missed that day. <laughs> yeah. But the, the big discussion we were having was whether or not to, to do an open pseudonym or a closed pseudonym. Um, Meaning, do we just so do we do it the way we ended up doing it, which is like our names are just on it, our names are on the back, everyone knows that we did it. Oh, or do we just keep it secret? Um, and the idea for keeping it secret, or the the, you know, the appeal to that would be just making it like leaving breadcrumb trails around, like playing games with the anonymity. Um, and one idea we had was we wanted to incorporate S.E. Boyd in the Cayman Islands as like a shell corporation. Mm. So if someone did track down the copyright, it would end up in a dead end <laughs> shell corporation in the Cayman Islands, which I think you do for like $500 or something. That's a next, but that's we had a lot of funny look, ideas yeah. for like teasing it out, you know, creating these counter narratives mm -hmm. and stuff. But in the end, we decided to, to go open with it. Yeah. Yeah, we, at one point we even had like one of Alessandra's friends who's an actor was going to play like swivel which is where katie works the mm -hmm. fake uh internet uh dot comer uh was going to... river the ceo of that company um her friend was going to play him doing like a hamilton rap on like it, it got so time. deep yeah. we, we really got we, re yeah. Yeah, we yeah, bought yeah. urls yeah. we had social media accounts yeah. we were ready to go that but viking didn't want to do it well, it's like, I mean, it, you know, Tarantino famously does, like, you know, where he'll write the entire script for a fake name, fake title that he throws out in the middle of a, you know, offhandedly in a movie. Um, but it's I, really I, fun. I, yeah, I mean, are, do you guys plan on doing more more work together under this moniker? Or? Yeah, we have been. Doing it now. Oh, good. Uh, book two is solidly underway. You want to tease it out? Yeah, we're about 35% into uh book two right now that's what we've been working on um it's called spare it's about the how, how do you want to tease it princes <laughs> yeah a fictitious um fading kingdom <laughs> um how to tease it well that's about this is about the struggle to stay relevant uh, you know a, a little bit kind of in keeping with the sort of fame commentary of Lemon. This is about um, 
you know, some of the characters are a washed up child star, a, you know, absolutely blockbuster global music celebrity, um, her army of staff, and, um, you know, what happens when a a hundred thousand dollar dog is kidnapped. Mm. So sort again, of. ripped from today's headlines. <laughs> yeah, and maybe somebody got shot in the process. Wow, that is. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. Those are all actual touchstones. So that's that's fun. <laughs> um, so Prince, let me Prince ask you Harry's this. The one it, no, shot. but it is. It, oh, go ahead. Prince, uh, Prince Harry yeah. was doing a. He was doing like an Instagram video at the time of the crime, and he ends up getting shot in the book. <laughs> Exactly, but it's just on his penis that's frostbitten. It shatters like it shatters like glass when he gets it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah, it's called shattered glass. That's the name of the book. It's never been done. Um, Sorry, you were going to ask something. (laughs) I was going to follow up on the shed on glass thing. Um, What? uh, How was it? Just you know, as a practicality, what was the? promotion of the book like i caught you on on one uh, evening of of your book tour but um what did you know keeping in in mind that these these businesses are all evolving television uh publishing um journalism what is a what is a current what does a modern book tour look like um and you know are you the are you your own road manager at this point yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You, you do everything uh-huh. basically. I, I, unless you, you know, unless you're Johnny Grisham or Tommy Clancy, uh, or whoever the other person is Dini that Kings. I always mention. Um, Mikey, Crichton. <laughs> Johnny Steele, <laughs> Mikey Crichton. There it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, you, we we sort of structured our own uh, tour. I mean, they'll you know they, they'll help you with interviews, and we were lucky enough to be. We got a great review in the Times, and um, you know we had some great. We were sort of had made the algorithm of all these like best books of the fall mm-hmm. and uh, like most anticipated book stuff. Uh, but once it launches and you're sort of like shot out, there's, you know, a couple weeks of um, to do. And then you've sort of got to make your own way uh, mm-hmm. after that. And it's really, you know, you just start kind of writing handwritten letters uh, to famous people asking at them. Yeah, just Dan Quayle, for example. <laughs> trying to get Dan Quayle to promote the book. Um, he's, Ameri- he's America's Other big Harry. names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, just you're, you're doing everything yourself. I think until it's one of those things where it's all retroactive, where like if, if you're huge, they'll take right. care of it. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're not, you, you need to take care of it until you get huge and then maybe they'll take care of it. So, it's, yeah, um, so it's the same, you know, sort of uh, line of of logic that that you know when you're when you're a movie star, you get everything for free. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. 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 
And um, uh, I, I once had uh, I once had a drink with Boston Rob. You remember him from Survivor? I remember the from Canton, Mass. Okay. Um, yeah, I was profiling him for Boston Magazine when when Joe and I worked there, and he had like just he was whoring himself out. This is like 2005 or whatever, and it was in a Newark uh, airport, Hilton, and uh, and he was like. So he, once he knew it was on Boston Mag's dime, he ordered like three drinks and like two to-go meals. And he was like, that's the thing, man. Like, I'm just getting more famous and more famous and they're just buying me more and more stuff. And, you know, he's like taking like cartons of like like Hilton hamburgers uh, back up to his room. But like, that's the pinnacle of fame. That's where we hope Ooh. to get yeah. to uh, free Hilton yeah, hamburgers. Yeah, to the Newark Airport Hilton. That's... <laughs> Apex. It's, uh, it's a step above Newark <laughs> Airport. <laughs> so anyway, it's true. Whatever. I um well I you know I think we'll uh, we'll you know take this as a as an ending point, but I do appreciate you guys coming by and and talking and and I love the book. Um, as you heard, Damien, our producer, loved the book, so that's that's two. Um, and then the New York Times loved it as well. So um, I think you guys are doing okay. Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle. Four. Yeah. Um, but his, yeah, his, uh, in his new book, Spar. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, good luck in catching uh, Prince Harry on the road and uh, in the, in the uh, bestseller list. And um, anything uh, you guys want to toss in? Anything you want to pitch? Anything that's going on that, uh, that we should know about? Mm. We're just going to close it down. Joe? You got no, you got no. We're just waiting. We're just waiting to hear back on the show and working on the next book right now. But it... yeah, yeah. Well, joke. We're just we're just creating more jazz. <laughs> jazz content, as we like to word say. Jazz. <laughs> word jazz. <laughs> word jazz. <laughs> word jazz. <laughs> we're just jazzing all yeah. over everyone. It really is the only truly American art form. It's Ooh. about the notes you don't play. <laughs> think on that anyway thank you guys so (laughs) much for coming by and and uh really appreciate it and love the book and everybody buy it it's called the lemon and the author is se boyd and i'm talking to them right now thanks brother so see you thank you so much i'm wyndham lewis on behalf of my brothers jeremy sartori and christian lewis thank you very much for listening to the brother 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 podcast many thanks also to our heroic producer damian kendall and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.